Coming up on today's show, we're seeing a slight increase in home sales, plus the national housing strategy that we brought in back in 2017 to solve homelessness. How are we doing? We're halfway through. Eh, We're not doing that great. And a really interesting story. The FDA has given the go-ahead to lab-grown meat. They say it is safe for human consumption. So what comes next? For the first time... In about eight months, October actually saw an increase in home sales in Canada. Now, that is when we're talking about month over month. So we saw a slight increase in October from September. However, if you look year over year or go back even further, it is a much much different story. We've got a lot of ground to make up. So let's find out what's going on. We're going to chat with Aled Abiorworth, who is a Deputy Chief Economist with the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Um, Aled, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you being here today. Good to be with you, Shay. So let's start. Uh, I've got the numbers right, correct? Uh, month over month, we saw an increase in most markets in the number of homes that were sold. Yeah, you, you you have the numbers right. There's been a lot of declines, but there seems to be some stability coming in. Some well, stability. Exactly. That's the thing, right? It sounds positive, and it is. It is, but it's a whole different story when you sort of stack the numbers up on a year-over-year basis. October was actually the lowest, slowest October, what, going back more than 10 years, right? Yes, there's been a lot of declines. There's been a lot of macro uncertainty. Uh, interest rates have been going up. Uh, there's a lot of doubt about the state of the economy. And this has been putting a lot of pressure on the housing market. People have been reluctant to put their homes up for sale. People reluctant to pay the prices. So sales and listings have really taken a tumble this year. Um, is, is that the main thing? Uncertainty? People just sort of watching and waiting? Or is it some of the actual actions that have been taken that we're supposed to slow things down, slowing things down, or why are we in this spot? I, I well, I think it's mostly the macro situation. I mean, clearly, uh, interest rates have been going up, mortgage rates have been going up. Um, there's just been a lot of doubt and uncertainty coming out of COVID and all the policy actions that were taken. Um, so I, I, I'm putting most of the uh, responsibility on the macro policies, interest rates, and so forth. There have been some changes on down payments, but but those are not really that large um, at, at the current time. What about if you're in a position right now where you're thinking of buying a home and we've been told for, I don't know, what is it, six months now that the government is doing everything they can and the Bank of Canada is doing everything they can to slow down the housing market. So if you're in a position where you're thinking of buying a home, wouldn't it make good sense to wait as long as you possibly can because prices are only going to go down? Well, I think that's what most people are doing. They've been seeing the trends. They've been uh, hearing what the Bank of Canada has been saying. Um, the level of debt by Canadians is really high at the moment. So that with all of this uncertainty, the sound approach at the moment is really to wait. It, 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 with all of this uncertainty, taking on that, uh, that huge mortgage that we have uh, with homes, is it's maybe just a little bit too risky at the moment. So we know there were massive increases in um, the price of homes in Canada throughout the pandemic. How much of that has been given back? And if this continues, or has any of it been given back, or are those prices still staying strong? No, I, I think it's being given back. I, not all of it, but, but certainly you're seeing a lot of give up particularly in Toronto and Vancouver. It's a little bit less so in in, in Alberta, but um, you're seeing a lot of declines in, in Vancouver and Toronto. And it's also 
a little bit of those uh, the outlying suburbs, shall we say, those areas where people were really moving to during the early phases of, of the pandemic. So early on in the pandemic, people were getting didn't want to be in their condos. They wanted more space to work from yeah. home. And so there was a little bit of a shift to the you know larger houses in the suburbs. And now we're seeing a bit of a... Um, a take back from that effect. What's the uh, prediction here then? If we saw that slight increase in October, is that the start of a new trend, a new direction that we're taking with housing? Is that one month? What are you expecting? Well, what we're expecting is that maybe there'll be a little bit more declines to come in in, in the coming months, but most of the decline uh, we were predicting has taken place. So overall, we're seeing uh, for Canada that house prices probably come down around 15% from the first quarter of this year to the second quarter of next year. But the bulk of that is already happening. So um, there may be a little bit more, you know, one or two down months to come. Um, but but we feel that the the bulk of the decline has happened. Uh, what, what will probably take place next year is that we see again rising incomes, rising population, um, interest rates. Hopefully, will you know start to edge down. Inflation will be under control. There's not a lot of housing supply out there, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto, and, and so these market fundamentals start to reassert themselves, and you start to see prices going up again. Um, do you have any information? I know you're with CMHC, so I don't know if this is really in your in your bailiwick, so to speak. But in terms of rentals, I'm hearing all kinds of stories that this is having a big impact on the rental market too. In terms of rents going way up, is that sort of the other side of the coin here when you have uh, yeah. this kind of uh, situation with the housing market? Right. I mean, our goal at CMHC is that everyone in Canada is a home they can afford. And clearly that's for home ownership, but also it's very important for rental because it's generally, uh, you know, lower income households will, will rent. And we want them to have um, options to have affordable uh, housing affordability. And it, th- there is really a crunch on the rental at the moment. Um, if you're if you're moving from one rental unit to another, uh, you're seeing a big spike in the rents that you have to pay if you can find a place. Uh, the vacancy rates on rental are really low, uh, and then there's a quite a jump when you're when you're moving from one place to another. So again, we need more supply of rental units. Um, there's just a lot of demand for rental at the moment, and it's very difficult to get a space. Is that demand partly because of what's going on with people who might be buying instead deciding to wait it out a little bit longer yeah. and, and staying on the yeah. sidelines? So, and we're just seeing more people choosing to rent at this time. Yes, exactly. So you you have younger people um, starting new households, you know, moving out of mm-hmm. their parents' house. They go into rental, so this is increasing demand for uh, home ownership uh, for rental. Uh, at the same time, you're seeing people not jumping into the home ownership market because uh, interest rates have gone up so much. So the, the demand for rents, the, the rental units, is there, and it's, it's the vacancy rates are on the way down. And hopefully, as things we were mentioning improve with the housing sector, that will translate into the rental sector as well then. You'd hope. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah you'd hope. And at CMHC, we're really trying to encourage more construction of rental units because there's a desperate need for more uh, rental supply. But, you know, if the home ownership market starts to stabilize, um, maybe more people will move out of rental into home ownership and there'll be more stability there. All right. Great information. Uh, Thank you so much, Aleta. I appreciate you being here today.
We're in the middle, right smack in the middle, of a 10-year national housing strategy. Came about in 2017. Billions and billions of dollars launched to address the key areas in the Canadian housing situation that we find ourselves in, right? Uh, make homes more affordable and reduce the levels of homelessness. Um, I don't know how well we've done. Obviously, we still have issues. Has there been improvements? What are we doing wrong? What can we do better? We're going to have a conversation about that right now with Ren Thomas, who is an associate professor at the School of Planning at Dalhousie University. Uh, she and her student, Holly Blackmore, worked on Dr. Jacqueline Gahagan's study on housing LGBT seniors in uh, 2020 and 2021. She's joining us today to talk about this national housing strategy and how it seems to be working and where it may have gone wrong. Um, Ren, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, this situation, first of all, let, let's just sort of define some of the parameters that we're talking about here. How do we, because there's various levels that are sort of addressed by this, right, in terms of housing need, affordability, all these sorts of things. It's not one size fits all, correct? That's right. Yeah, there's lots of different, uh, obviously we have the kind of 30% of, of household income, pre-tax household income is kind of the CMHC standard for affordability. Okay. But of course, people have different, uh, yeah, there, you know, some people may not, you know, like some people need, need, uh, you know, of course people need shelters and, you know, people experiencing homelessness and that kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, and you, and it's sort of broken down by different international organizations in terms of, you know, the cost. It's not just having the house. You have to be able to have heat and, and water and, and power and all those sorts of things. So there's a whole equation that's behind this. Yeah, if you look at the OECD indicators, they include, yeah, like the expenditure, which includes rent, but also maintenance and repair and yep. utility. And it also includes, you know, are people, are, are households actually able to heat their home, like keep their dwelling warm? And then there's also things like satisfaction, like are they happy with their housing? Like is it, is it you know, in good condition and that type of thing? And we're not seeing uh, great results on a lot of those factors. But when we talk about something called core housing need, can you, can you explain what that means? Because that seems to be sort of the bedrock, right? Yeah, so in Canada, yeah, so our measure in Canada is this thing called core housing need, and it, it does differ in some, in some respects. So basically, if you're in core housing need, it means you live in housing that's either it's unaffordable, so it costs more than 30% of your pre-tax household income, or it's unsuitable, which means the size, usually the size of your household is too large for your unit, or it's inadequate, which means your housing's in poor repair. And, and basically, the key is like you have one of those factors, but you also can't afford a, a, like right. some kind of alternative housing yeah, in your community. So, so that's the scene kind of um, definition of, of core housing need. And if we look at across Canada, you know, we're, you know, at a range of between, if you look at provincially, a range of a low of 6% in Quebec to a high of, you know, as high as 32.9% in Nunavut. And that's that's really quite high, obviously, wow. in Nunavut. And, yeah. and, and like you say, it, it just simply comes down to affordability, which I think most of us understand. You just can't afford to move into a better place. That's right. Yeah, they're well, they're just yeah, they're we do have now and some people have been arguing for a long time that there's a supply issue in Canada that mm. you know, we just don't have enough units. But I mean, BMO, um, you know, has done research on this that no, like actually we're forming households at a, a slower rate than we're actually building units. So we should actually do we actually do have the supply. What's happening though is we have so much because we have a basically market-based housing system. We have so much speculation. People are buying units and speculating and you know, they're holding those units and not living in them, for example. And, I mean, that's, let's get into that a little more because that was the target of this national housing strategy, right? Was to try and deal with affordability. That was one of the main planks in the platform. Um, so, so what happened? Cause like you say, we are building more units, but it's not changing the affordability at all. 
That's right. Yeah. So in Canada, our major issue is affordability. Like, so those other categories of inadequacy and unsuitability, those aren't major issues that we face. Right. And if you look at percentages, yeah. So the affordability is the main thing. So 77% of people who are in core housing need, it's affordability. And so that, you know, that, you know, this, that this was one of the main goals of the strategy, but we haven't really achieved that because the thresholds for affordability in most of the programs that they run are not very high. Like, I mean, you know, you don't have to meet those kind of very high uh, 30% thresholds except for one particular program, which is the Rapid Housing Initiative. And so these other programs, are, which are grant or loan programs, um, and, and often are like things like the Housing Co-Investment Fund, um, they, the affordability thresholds are lower, and they also are not permanent, right? So it, actually, for none of these programs, is affordability permanent. So that's really a problem, right? We're building these units that might only be affordable for 10 years, and in the case of RHI, for 20 years. So, you know, what, what's supposed to happen then in, in 10 years or 20 years? Like, is our situation changing? Like, probably not, right? Because in Canada, we've had affordability issues for over 20 years. Sure. So, yeah. So, I mean, the programs that we've designed, and, and like I say, we're five years into this now, uh, yeah. clearly are not meeting the goals. They're, 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 they're failing, by and large. Um, what do we need to do? I mean, how do we change the, the focus of what we're doing? It's a 10-year plan. We're halfway through, and we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, so there have been a number of reports published, which I mentioned in this article, which like the National Research Council published one, the um, Parliamentary Office published one. And, you know, so there are some really good recommendations in those reports in terms of like where we need to, where we need to kind of make a cha- make changes. And a number of them are around, you know, um, kind of shifting the, you know, program funding into these different areas. Like, so shifting it more into the Rapid Housing Initiative, which has proven to be, you know, building a lot of units very quickly and those are the ones that are much more affordable, and also transferring more money into, like, bilateral programs. So each province or territory has an agreement with the federal government, um, and they, through that they run all these bilateral kind of programs through, you know, um, cost cost sharing. And so one of the recommendations has always been, you know, to put more money to those programs and also into interventions like the Canada Housing Benefit, which helps supplement people's rent. If they're in areas where they just can't find units that are affordable, it helps supplement their rent. And it is meant for people that are usually meant for people that are low income. In some places, like in Ontario, it helps people who are actually on the waiting list for for public housing. So, yeah. So, I mean, like I say, are are, are we seeing some gains? I mean, I, we, we like like okay, we haven't met the goals that we set out for this ten year program, but we are only halfway through. I mean, are we seeing some things starting to bear fruit? And is there a possibility that we can see some drastic improvement over the next five years, or, or are you not hopeful? Well, I mean, we're building more units for sure. So in terms of those people who believe that the supply is the issue, yeah, we're building more units. So that's that's successful. Like re- Rental Construction Financing Initiative, or which was one of CMHC's programs, that, that was a major goal of that program, was to get more rental housing built. So yeah, we're building more rental housing for sure than we were five years ago. But um, is the housing affordable? No, as, as you said yourself. I mean, so that's really where we need to kind of look. And, and it, you know, are we going to, like, yeah, I mean, this year the federal budget did um, allocate more money to the RHR, so hopefully that will result in a lot more affordable units being built in our cities. Um, I think the other real thing, uh, challenge is like, I, I mean, we'd like to see more units in places outside of Ontario and Quebec. Like, frankly, a lot of that funding has really gone to those two provinces. And if you look at, you know, the, especially the grant programs to municipalities and that kind of thing, it, you know, CMHC, in my opinion, they haven't done a great job about making sure that this is kind of geographically, you know, kind of spread out too. I mean, you look at places like Minnesota where there is a, a major need and there's this huge core housing need. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like that's where we should kind of be focusing. So in terms of are we going to see 
a rapid, you know, like all these people removed from core housing needs? Like, no, probably not, because that's, we're not <laughs> we're not putting the money where you know we should be. So the question, Ren, is okay with with being halfway through. Is was it sort of here's the plan? Here's here's the ten year strategy. Boom, and then everybody walked away, and it was sort of left to some of the programs that are in place. Let's run these programs, or is it a? It, does it have an opportunity to be changed and adapted and focused and redefined as we go on? I mean, is somebody working yeah. on saying okay, we can improve it in this area? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that's why these reports are done, and that's why the recommendations are made, and that's why there have been already changes in this year's federal budget, right? So there is, and there and there was a lot of public consultation this year as well um, on, you know, how the, how the NHS is doing and what people want to see changed. And I think they heard loud and clear that, you know, they're, that these organizations that really do need funding are not getting it. Yeah. So non cooperatives and, you know, they're kind of at the community level and those who are most vulnerable are not getting that funding either. And so how do we change that? You know, and the part of the work that I did with Dr. Gahagan was around seniors and people who are LGBT and some of their concerns around housing. And this is a group for in, in particular, which, you know, CMHC will say that they're interested in helping this group and, and other vulnerable groups, but they don't really specifically do it. It's up to those organizations who help those groups to apply for funding and to, like, get the, you know, to get those grants. So, you know, are they really helping individuals in these, you know, not really. They're really helping organizations that serve those individuals if they have the capacity to apply for those grants. And that's where we kind of get into some issues. Yeah. Almost an industry. Yeah. Uh, Ren, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Talking about something that they call no kill meat. Okay. No-kill meat, cultivated meat, call it what you want, meat grown in a lab. Um, a San, San Francisco-based company produces meat in a lab. They're not alone. There's actually a few that are doing this. The way that it works is they take cells from an animal through a biopsy, okay? They put them in a tank. Then they feed them, essentially. They feed these cells with, you know, all the nutrients that cells need to grow. Uh, and they do grow. And you end up with what they call meat, the original animal is unharmed, so you've got no-kill meat. Um, it's a giant step forward this week because the Food and Drug Administration in the United States deemed it safe. Now, it's not given the green light in every respect, but they have said, yeah, this stuff is safe for human consumption. Big, big step forward. Um, okay, so let's find out <laughs> all the details around this, when we might actually see it in store shelves, if we might, and why older people seem to just turn up their nose immediately. Let's find out. We're going to chat with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who is a professor and director at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, Sylvain, thank you for joining us again. I always appreciate your time. My pleasure. Okay. No-kill meat. Did I describe it correctly? Is that how they, uh, for lack of a better term, make this meat? Uh, well, no-kill meat is uh, something that the Americans uh, do use as uh, as a, an explainer for cultured meat. The cultured meat is probably the term that is mostly used in the scientific community, uh, and uh, other people will call it lab-grown meat as well. Uh, it's just I, I think a lot of people are moving away from from the word lab because uh, if you look at uh, some uh, some outfits in the in the United States uh, I mean these these labs have become 
plants, really, because you have to think <laughs> about producing these things on a much larger scale than just a little lab. Well, that's the thing. Now, okay, just to back up a bit, this has been around for a long time, this concept, this ideal, uh, a bunch of different developers have been working on this. It's not brand new. This is a long process, right? It's been going on for actually, uh, I think, almost two decades, really. But uh, over, I'd say over the last seven, eight years, you've seen uh, non-ag uh, venture capitalists uh, investing heavily in this space in the United States. And in Canada, by the way, we I think there's probably 12 or 13 startups right now looking at uh, producing uh some sort of food in a in a synthetic matter, and so uh, so this is what we call cellular agriculture, so uh, synthetic agriculture, if you will. So there there is more interest, and, and the reason why there's more interest is uh, it, it's due to uh, to climate change, environment. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about the environment, and and frankly, over the last seven eight years, because of this influx of cash. They've been able to actually bring down the cost to produce a kilo of meat, for example. There, there are projects related to seafood, coffee, cocoa. When we talk about coffee being uh, subject to to climate change effects uh, in, in around the equator, uh, we we all know that it's going to become more difficult to produce coffee. Well, they're actually thinking of producing coffee beans in a uh, in a lab environment. So there's lots going on here, but the real the real story is that they've been able to actually bring down the cost to produce these things uh, even below uh, the market value of of products we all know uh, really? at the meat counter. Really? Yeah. So they're they're producing this cheaper than what you know? Let's call it traditional meat, just for purposes of discussion. Yeah, Singapore has a mandate by 2030. Uh, the country wants 30 percent of all meat to be consumed uh, in Singapore to be produced in Singapore with no farmland at all. Well, how do you do that? <laughs> well, with labs, basically. And right now, uh, chicken, but basically, uh, synthetic chicken, uh, lab-grown chicken, is now allowed to be sold. Uh, in Singapore, and that price is lower than regular chicken. Wow, I'm surprised by that. Okay, now it seems to me, uh, people on the text line, why? Well, why? Well, I think the reasons why there's there's a bunch of them, right? And the, one of the big ones is, as you mentioned, Singapore. Some of their, I mean, it, it it's about climate change. It's about environmentalism, correct? That's right. The the other layer, which which is why the no kill term is often used, is is that it can attract also people who are concerned about animal welfare. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more discussion about that, especially with chicken. And um, I know poultry farmers and egg farmers have been subject to a lot of criticism over the years uh, around animal welfare in particular. Um, do you think it could change minds in terms of, like you say, when you talk about a lot of people who are vegetarian or vegan, uh, and part of their thinking around that is animal welfare, of course. Does this change that equation yeah. for them, do you think? Is there any research on that? Well, we've done some research on that uh, over the last few years. Uh, if you're over fifty, if you're over forty-five, chances are you're listening to this conversation. You're going, "Yuck! I'm not interested at all." But the millennials and the, the younger generations are absolutely interested. Actually, more than eighty percent of millennials and, and generations as would be willing to try 
a uh, a um, a product like that. So it's not it's not allowed in Canada. It's still not allowed in the U.S. They still have to get the approval of the USDA. But this week's approval of the FDA was a huge step forward. So it's just a matter of time before the Americans see um, lab-grown chicken uh, in stores. Does it? Have you ever tried it? Have you ever seen it, or have you heard? It? Does it taste the same? Is the texture the same? Can you tell the difference? Uh, I, I was supposed to taste uh, lab-grown chicken uh, in 2020 in May, but uh, because of COVID, my ah. my trip to Chicago was canceled. But I did. I was able to actually try cream cheese made from uh, made with precision fermentation, so no no milk involved, no cows involved. Uh, it was actually produced in Israel, in Tel Aviv. It was shipped to me uh, in Halifax. Tried it, and I couldn't. I couldn't tell the difference. It was actually cheese that I got, and I couldn't tell the difference between regular cheese and um, and and the cheese I got. So it was pretty impressive. Cellular agriculture is really getting more and more attention. Uh, in in America, I think it's really a question of time before it gets uh, it right. becomes legal in Canada. We have marketing boards. I'm sure our friends uh, um, in in the poultry business will have something to say about that. We have billions and billions of dollars of quotas in Canada, and obviously they would be impacted by what well, without. And the other issue, of course, is labeling. I think I think consumers deserve to know. Right now, we have genetically modified salmon being sold everywhere in Canada. Nobody knows where it is because it's not labeled. I think for Selling agriculture, it's important for consumers to know where those products are instead of just mixing uh, lab-grown chicken with the rest of, of the products we have. Would we not know? I, I guess that's the question. Like, does it? Would the taste be the same, the texture? I mean, would it be so... Uh, well, I guess it is meat. I mean, would, would, is there any way of telling what the difference is? No, no. Uh, I would go even further. I mean, you can basically design the perfect chicken for you. Let's say, for example, you're anemic. Yeah. You need more iron. You can actually add more iron to the meat. You know, it's it's just it's limitless. It's incredible what you can do. But I but I do know I did uh talk some of my friends who are food scientists in the United States have tried um these products. Uh the, the product that was actually approved by the FDA and, and, and just they just can't tell the difference. It's the same texture, same look. Uh the production cycle is the same, it's just the scale uh, to feed cells, instead of feeding an animal with corn, you're feeding cells with corn. That's basically the difference. Um, and there's some some of the massive meat industry players are involved in this, right? Like I think I think I read that Tyson Chicken, which is enormous, they've got a stake in this. So I mean, this is this is coming, right, Sylvain? Upside Food, which is the company that just got uh, the approval from the FDA, is funded by yes, Bill Gates and and um, and uh, Mr. Branson, of course. Uh, but it is also, and this is really the interesting part. It's it's funded by Tyson Foods uh, and Cargill, and those are huge players in livestock. So you can see that could, these companies are fully aware of what's going on here. Uh, they're they're not hedging against animal proteins, but they're certainly seeing that a crop of new customers are coming into the marketplace with a different point of view. How long do you think before you know we're heading out into the backyard to barbecue up a, a lab-grown steak? I mean, is that something we're going to see in two years, five years, ten years? 
it, it all depends on the politics in Canada, which is really weird. In Canada, we don't tend to embrace uh, innovation all that much when it comes to animal proteins, unfortunately. Um, so I, in America, I think it's a, it's a matter of months. But wow. uh, I do know that America will have a huge say uh, or will pressure Health Canada to approve this. But again, I'm going back to the marketing boards. I think the marketing boards, uh, which are incredibly powerful in Canada, will probably have something to say about this. Oh, for sure they will. For sure they will. It, it's a really interesting conversation, though. Uh, Dr. Charlebois, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time as always, sir. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.